You are now rocking with a jazz hammer. Welcome back to the Rock Behind the Climb. I'm your host, the Jazz Hammer, Quinn Todzo. In this episode, we are headed out to the Sierra Nevada mountain range to talk about the world-famous Sierra Nevada granite. And what about it has made some of the most iconic climbing spots in the world. Now, as with the last episode, I want to again say thank you to everyone of you listening and supporting this podcast. All the feedback, recommendations, and positivity is incredibly encouraging and has been a huge driver in keeping me motivated and excited about this podcast. Also, a huge shout out to Bobby Hutton, who reached out to me after the last episode and offered to teach me how to sport climb and introduce me to an area that he developed. I will talk more about our experience later on in this episode, but I wanted to make sure to say thanks and that I was honored to climb with you, Bobby. Also, if any of you ever want to climb, feel free to reach out via any of the links in the description and we'll make something work out. So... On this episode, I'm going to present things a little bit differently than I have in the first few episodes. In the first few episodes, I looked at the climbing area, pointed out the features of the rock and surrounding area that stand out, and explained how they got there using the geology of the region. This has been really cool and all, but this time, I want to flip the script and talk about the geology, and use the features I noticed during my personal experience rock climbing to explain it. I'm going to talk about my experience on this episode heading up to a few spots in the so-called Highway 88 corridor near Kirkwood, California. But instead of using the geology to explain the rock climbing, this episode I'm using the rock climbing to explain the geology. I am doing this for a few reasons. First and foremost, it is that in the first three episodes, I really have not looked at the big picture of what is going on with the geology of California as a whole. So many of the rock climbing areas in California, and really the western United States for that matter, can seem very independent of one another, when really they are all interconnected to some degree and fit into this giant puzzle. I think it would be helpful to zoom all the way out and give a nice baseline of understanding going forward of how the west was shaped. This happens to be the perfect episode to take a step back and look at the full geologic picture because the granitic formation that is omnipresent over much of the eastern region of California is an integral piece to the geologic puzzle. The Sierra Nevada mountain range and its granitic basement stretch nearly 400 miles north to south on the eastern border of California and is about 80 miles wide. It makes up many of the high peaks in California and defines a large chunk of the topography in the state. Basically, it's hard to understand the Sierra Nevada granite without knowing something about the overall geologic picture of California, and it's impossible to talk about the formation of California without mentioning the Sierra Nevada granite. The two go hand in hand. Also, the granite is not only an integral part of the geology of California, it is also one of the most famous rock formations in the rock climbing world. Not necessarily a coincidence. From some of the classic peaks and domes in Yosemite like El Capitan or Half Dome, 
to the world-famous bouldering in the Buttermilks near Bishop, California, and many more places in between and around, the Sierra Nevada granite is the formation responsible for all of these. There is a lot that I want to go over, so much so that I have to split this introduction to the Sierra Nevada granite into two episodes. This episode talks about the big geologic events that led to the creation of the granite, and its effects on the climbing. Part 2 will dive further into the jointing and weathering of the granite that define the classic climbs. Also, I had the chance to interview Bobby a bit on his impressions of the area as a route setter, which I will share as I go along. These next two episodes are going to be a bit ambitious, but I'm excited to take it all on. I will certainly miss some things, but Luckily, there are no shortage of climbing areas that feature the Sierra Granite for me to cover in the future. But, before I get into any of that, I want to get something out of the way. I know that somewhere out there, there's an armchair geologist scoffing in his study every time I say the word granite, because he knows that the Sierra Batholith is really a granodiorite. Okay, maybe it's not that dramatic, but I have heard a lot of people refer to the formation as a granodiorite, or a diorite, or a granite. The reality is that it depends, because there are areas that show signs of all these kinds of rocks, since they're all very similar. These types of rocks are all intrusive igneous rocks, which means that they form from a molten magma, but cool slowly inside the earth rather than outside like a volcanic rock. Most intrusive igneous rocks are divided into three general rock types. Granite, diorite, or gabbro. These rock types refer to the chemical composition of the rock, or more specifically, the ratio of silica-based minerals to the amount of magnesium and iron-based minerals. The silica-based ones are generally lighter in color or even pinkish while the magnesium and iron-based ones are dark-colored. In geology, the word granite specifically refers to the more silica-based, lighter-colored side of the intrusive igneous rock spectrum. Diorite is somewhere in the middle, and gabbro is on the darker side. In regards to the Sierra Nevada granite, it is not a monolith of just one rock type. Over the stretch of 400 miles, the composition can differ, so you can't really characterize this huge formation as one singular rock type. Thing is, though, that whether it's a location with less or more silica, there are a lot of characteristics about this entire expanse that are the same, and there are plenty of factors that influence the features of the rock other than subtle changes in the composition. So, to make it easy, I'm just going to call it granite or describe the rock as granitic, since it's easy and people know what I'm talking about when I say granite. Also, in my opinion, the coolest and most interesting parts of this rock have nothing to do with the subtle changes in the composition that define the rock name. So pardon me if I'm a little loose with the rhetoric, since that is not necessarily the focus here. Okay, now let's take a step back and talk about how the Sierra Nevada Mountains and the rest of California came to be. I think the best way to do so is to first describe my drive from the Bay Area out to the climbing spot. You'll see why in a sec. 
So I left for my trip from my parents' house just south of San Francisco and drove across the bay into the East Bay Hills region. This region is marked by rolling hills of brown pasture topped with windmills. These rolling East Bay Hills actually make up a series of mountain ranges up and down the west coast of the United States called the Coastal Ranges. These hills are typically a few thousand feet high maximum. After passing up and over the East Bay Hills, I continued east into the region known as the Central Valley, which is completely flat and full of luscious farmland. This area is about 50 miles wide and runs parallel to the mountain range going north and south. With perfect soil, climate, and topography, this region actually grows half of the United States' fruits, vegetables, and nuts. As I travel east beyond the Central Valley, the land slowly begins to rise through the foothills, and before I knew it, I was at 7,000 feet elevation in the Sierras, which, in contrast to the coastal ranges, can reach elevations above 14,000 feet. While I didn't pass completely up and over the Sierra Nevada mountain range, it becomes a very steep drop-off on the other side down into the Nevada Basin. So, to recap, going from west to east over the course of about 250 miles, we have rolling hills, flat farmland, and then a gradual incline into a large mountain range to a steep drop-off into Nevada. Each of these regions run roughly parallel to the coastline and are completely different from one another. These regional features that mark the path to the Sierras are no coincidence, and even though they look different from one another, they fit perfectly together as a textbook subduction zone environment. So long before the transverse San Andreas Fault existed, which is the fault line that currently separates the North American plate from the Pacific plate, there was actually another tectonic plate in between the two. This plate is called the Farallon plate and was an oceanic plate that stretched all the way up from present day Alaska to Central America and collided with the North American plate. Since the oceanic Farallon plate crust was denser than that of the North American, the Farallon plate actually slid underneath the North American, creating what is called a subduction zone. The Farallon as a whole has since mostly subducted underneath North America and therefore does not exist anymore. But there are pieces that still exist. The Juan de Fuca plate up in the Pacific Northwest is a piece of the Farallon that is still subducting, but has not finished yet. This is why the Pacific Northwest is still an active subduction zone, while California has a transverse plate boundary. So the Farallon plate wasn't exactly flat, and already had a bunch of rocks and islands that had been created on it. When the plate was subducting, these islands and rocks actually got scraped off the plate and then smushed, or accreted, onto North America rather than subduct underneath with the rest of the plate. The coastal ranges, which include those hills, 
that make up the East Bay are made up of old Farallon Islands and rocks that got sutured onto North America. With all these accreted Farallon terrains, as they're called, being thrust up onto land, the whole North American continent went into a state of compression, folding over the landscape in certain places. One of those places is the Sierra Nevada Mountains, which were uplifted in part due to the compression of the continent. However, the main reason why the mountains are so high is because of hot magma rising into the Earth's crust because of the subduction. As the Farallon Plate dipped down below the North American Plate, it eventually hit a layer of Earth below the crust called the Mantle, which is filled with hot molten magma. Through a process called flux melting, the ocean water and other volatiles resting on the Farallon crust caused the magma to boil up into the crust of the North American continent. If the magma makes it to the surface, it becomes a volcano and produces the fast-cooling, extrusive, igneous rocks that we talked about in episode 3. While some volcanoes did form, a majority of the magma over time did not make it to the surface and instead cooled well underneath the surface of the North American continent, thus creating a huge magma chamber that we now know today as the Sierra Nevada granite. Okay, before I get into the properties of the rock and how they relate to the climbing, I do want to finish filling you in on the rest of Northern California. So you know what's happening on your trip out to the Sierras. We talked about the coastal hills being those sutured off islands and rocks accreted onto the continent, and the Sierra Nevada mountains. But in between is the flat, fertile Central Valley. This was originally a deep basin before the mountains started to arise, but was filled in with eroded sediments over the years to create the largely flat landscape. On the flip side, I mentioned how the Sierras gradually rise up coming from the west, but are steep and sheer on the eastern side. This is because after the Farallon finished subducting and was completely underneath the North American plate and swallowed by the mantle, the North American plate could finally relax. For so long, it had been compressed, creating all these mountain ranges, and then the landscape is extended back out, pulling these mountains apart. It is this pulling apart that created the sheer slopes on the backside of the Sierras. There are plenty of interesting climbing areas created by this process that I will get into in later episodes. Just to give an example though, Lake Tahoe was created by mountains pulling apart from one another due to this stress relaxation and the land that was in the middle of these mountains, now the lake, just dropped downwards. As much as I would like to, I'm not here to talk about that in depth on this episode. So let's get to climbing the granite. I arrived up at a spot just off Highway 88 called the Emigrant Wall. You won't find any climbing guidebooks with these climbs listed since they were developed starting in 2017 by the man who invited me out to climb, 
Bobby Hutton. He has listed every climb he has developed on the mountain project. It is about a one and a half mile hike in from Highway 88 on a marked trail to get to this some 300 foot wall. With impeccable rock quality and stunning views, my first big question was, how in the heck did it take until 2017 for someone to find and develop this area for climbing? Here's Bobby on how he actually found the spot. So Bobby, how did you find this climbing area? So there's a nearby area um, that I had been climbing at for a while, a little top roping crag called Old Camp Bluff. And there was just so much granite in this area that I started playing around on Google Earth, zooming in and tilting the angle that you're looking at stuff. And I found this, uh, this granite and there was a big shadow on it. And I'm like, well, that looks steep enough to be casting a shadow. So let's go hike out there. And we did and we we're like, whoa, there's a, actually a big wall here that's worth putting in some routes. Okay, but still, as he said, there's a climbing area nearby. We took a marked trail to get there, and it is really close to a major highway. I mean, in the Bay Area, there is no way a perfect quality granite rock wall like this would go unnoticed for so long. In the Bay, there are so many areas that have been posted online or talked about in books that are so weathered and chossy that it feels like a stretch to even call them climbing spots. So the sight of an untapped, perfect granite wall is particularly incredulous to me. Well, part of the reason it has gone untapped for so long probably has to do with the fact that it is at least a couple hours away from a major metropolitan area. But I think it also speaks volumes to how omnipresent the intact granite is in this region. If you explore up and down the Sierras, there are tons of boulder fields and walls with great rock quality, many of which are not recorded rock climbing spots. Of course, the Sierra Granite is a huge formation that is continuous for over 400 miles, but there are plenty of strata that encompass large areas and are not even remotely as all-encompassing as the Sierra Nevada Granite. No, the reason we see it intact and all over the place is because of its resistance to weathering and its thickness. Let's take a quick sec to talk about the geologic time scale, which I haven't mentioned yet. In general, I find it hard to get a sense of geologic time since it all happened so long ago, but I'll provide some context here to maybe make more sense of it. Because the Sierra Nevada Batholith is pretty old. So, going back to episode 1, I talked about the Vaqueros Formation, which was deposited about 25 million years ago, and then later thrust up onto the Santa Cruz Mountains about 3.5 million years ago. There are traces of this formation of sandstone all the way down in Southern California near Santa Monica up to the Bay Area. Key word though here, traces. This unit is far from intact as it has been broken up and weathered a lot throughout the ages. In contrast, the Sierra Nevada granite, which is so intact that it sometimes feels like a giant block of rock across the eastern border of California, started forming over 150 million years ago. 
This means that it is about six times as old as the Vaqueros Sandstone. In that time, there have been many iterations of coastal mountain ranges that were accretions that have been thrust up onto the continent and later eroded away. But the Sierras have been pretty steadfast this whole time because of the granite. So how in all this time has it resisted being weathered away and maintaining such a perfect intact structure? Well, it has a lot to do with the way that the granite is formed. So as I stated earlier, granite is an igneous rock made from molten magma that cools relatively slowly. This allows for crystals to expand and become visible to the naked eye, rather than with volcanic rocks that cool so quickly that the crystalline structures do not have time to fully form that big. But if you look closer at the granite all over the Sierra, you can see the different minerals in the rock. It is also clear that there are no obvious gaps between these crystals, which makes it very hard for water to penetrate the rock. This is as opposed to most sedimentary or metamorphic rocks where there is something about the grains or laminations embedded in the rock structure that allows for water or other volatiles to trickle all the way in and break it up. However, granitic rock in general is definitely subject to weathering and can be extremely chossy. Popular climbing spots such as Joshua Tree National Park or Pinnacles National Park feature granitic rock that crumbles pretty easily. Even in the Sierras, there are plenty of hill slopes covered in grass or broken up like soil-like granite. But the best climbing in the Sierra features granite that is fresh, intact, and compact. The difference is the presence of glaciers. Let's get back to the climbing at the Emigrant Wall, though, because the main climb I did there exemplifies this well. The climbing spot itself is in an incredibly serene area. It is an exposed wall in a carved U-shaped valley. Looking down at the valley from the top of the wall, it almost looks like a huge skateboard halfpipe that has been filled in with trees and other greenery. When we made it to the climbing spot, I had to have a quick lesson on sport climbing and did this by first climbing the 5.6 rated High Plains Drifter to get acquainted. After that, I led the 5.9 rated Trackless Wilderness, which covers three pitches between 35 to 65 meters in length. The route is mostly sub-vertical slab, and while it does feature a few sheet-like ledges and horizontal cracks, most of the climb is purely slab. Here's Bobby on his thoughts on the climb. So on Trackless Wilderness, the route that we did today together as a multi-pitch sport climbing route, what were the features in the rock that stood out to you that really defined this climb? Um, so this is an interesting one because it was actually the absence of features. There is a uh, 25 to 35 foot section that is just really good, clean rock and that creates a pretty slick slab 
um, that is challenging to go up just because there are so few features there. <laughs> of course, the main reason for the shape of the valley, as well as the smooth, slabby rock, is the relatively recent glaciation in the area. Glaciers dominated the Sierra Nevada region as recently as 50,000 years ago, which, considering the millions of years timescale we are dealing with, did not happen too long ago. These glaciers accumulated in the mountains and, through the force of gravity, slowly slid downhill, scraping everything in their path. Along with carving these half-pipe-looking valleys, the glaciers also scraped off any of the chossy grass granite that had been broken up, leaving behind the polished, fresh granite in its wake. The small footholds and fingerholds that you can find are from the rock starting to break back up again. But it is still relatively smooth and textureless because of how recently the glaciers came through and smoothed everything out. This type of climbing is crazy because it takes a lot of patience and technique to find the good footholds to push up with your legs on almost nothing. While it didn't feel incredibly taxing at the time, my legs were quite sore the next day. While I'm on the topic of glaciation, I do want to further express the significance of its effects on the Sierras. It is these Pleistocene-era glaciers that have carved out and polished so many great climbing spots, the most obvious being Yosemite Valley. The world-famous Half Dome and El Capitan were both in part shaped by the Yosemite Glacier that cut through the valley. Also, as I mentioned, glaciers move downhill, but as temperatures warm, they only make it so far before stopping and melting. All those sediments and boulders that were scraped off of the gra granite bedrock end up at the edges of these glaciers in spots called moraines. In the Sierra, you can find a lot of great bouldering at these moraines because that's where all the boulders that were plucked from their origins got deposited. One such area is the Kirkwood Lake Boulder area, which is just up the road on Highway 88 from the Emigrant Wall. There is no mention of it on the Mountain Project, but there's a pretty good guide in the Bouldering Lake Tahoe Volume 2 book by Hatchet, Lucido, and Thompson. I'll talk a little more on some of the individual features of this area in Episode 2, but the gr in the grand scheme of things, it is a boulder field formed at the end of a glacial moraine where all these rocks have been shoved into the same place. These boulders are called glacial erratics because they do not necessarily match the same type of rock that is in place in the area. Although in this specific area, it is hard to distinguish between the nuances of the boulder granite versus the bedrock gra granite. So, kind of like how I was incredulous at the fact that the emigrant wall had gone unnoticed for so long, there are so many great-looking climbs in this Kirkwood Lakes area that have not been documented because of the sheer number of good quality boulders. And the significance of these moraine boulder fields is incredible. 
in the Sierras specifically, the buttermilks in Bishop, which are some of the best world-class boulders in the world, were pushed into place by the glacier that carved the Owens River Valley. I cannot wait to head out there soon and do an episode on Bishop because those climbs just look incredibly cool. Anyway, I think this is where I'm going to cap the first part of this series on the Sierra. From the subduction of the Farallon Plate to the glaciation, we talked mostly about how the Sierras, and really the western United States to a degree, was formed. We talked about the intrusion of the magma that creates the granite, and the glaciers that carved the valleys, deposited boulders, and smoothed out the rock, clearing it of its chossiness, and creating the polished slabs we know and love. But there is so much I cannot wait to get to. As anyone who is into climbing may know, the Sierra Granite is known for its insane crack climbing, and the region is known for its huge domes. All that and much, much more on the next episode of The Rock Behind the Climb. <laughs> Before closing out, though, I do want to make note of the fact that most of what I presented on in this episode is very simplified, especially with the mountain building from the subduction of the Farallon Plate. There is a ton of nuance in how some of the mountain ranges and granite rock that I talked about got formed. As I said in the beginning, this episode, as well as the next one, are more overviews of the entire Sierra Nevada, meant to give context when I dive deeper in the future on some of the classic climbing areas in this region and in the West in general. Anyway, happy climbing, and I will catch you on part two. Jazzhammer, out.